Welcome to Exiting Through the 2010s, a podcast about the movies from the 2010s. I'm Jack Draper. With me, for The Hungry Boy, it's Chloe Williams. I kind of want to know what Daniel Day-Lewis actually eats. Like, is he one of those guys? Is he, like, he, I can't, I wouldn't be surprised if he was, like, so some, like, hardcore vegan. Like, like, almost like Joaquin-esque. Just because of just his mysterious nature and just how, I don't know. He's also very slender. Does he eat meat? Does he even, has he, like, touched sugar in, like, you years? You said you would or wouldn't be surprised if Dan I wouldn't was be vegan. I would not be surprised. Yeah, I wouldn't either. I guess when people wear turtlenecks, I'm like, you know, you probably, you know, I don't know. Do you eat meat? Well, and when he's in his, his off-duty drag where he's wearing, like, the, the Carhartt beanie that's been, like, rolled up all the way. Like, the tats, he, right? He has a saying. vegan vibe and, yeah. about him. Absolutely. Cer- certainly. Um, Daniel Day-Lewis reminds me of my granddad, and my granddad is also a vegetarian. Um, like, has similar, like, body... Is your granddad an oil man? Height. (laughs) Does he have a competition in him? My granddad is, is, is Daniel Plainview. Um, I thought I could let that fly, but, uh, but I, I mean, you know, I've always just thought they looked alike. Today discussing Phantom Thread, I feel like that that this is this is like like really my my stretch of episodes here because we just put out uh first reformed and now we're talking about phantom thread but with us here to talk about all things reynolds woodcock it's allison herman hello thank you for having me hello of course absolute pleasure um before we zero in on the film usually we like to get to know our guests a little bit and talk about the movies that made you fall in love with movies if you can think about any films that you loved as a kid or films that yeah, that brought attention to what cinema can be for you. Um, certainly this one is one of those for me. Yeah, I mean, I picked this one in part because my probably actually personal favorite and most meaningful movie of the 2010s was Taken, which is um, Inherent Vice, uh, the previous mm. Paul Thomas Anderson movie. Um, it just really captured something as someone who grew up in California, I think it captured this like fundamental contradiction to what that state means after World War II. Um, and it felt like seeing someone just capture and distill something that I never even fully understood how to articulate, which I think is an experience a lot of people go to the movie theaters for. And mm-hmm. I also saw it um, in New York City, even though I grew up in California, and that feeling of being like outside of your home, but having something that reveals something really fundamental about your home. Um, I actually just had that experience when I was in Paris, and a friend and I, I made him go see a movie with me because I'd heard that was a thing to do there. And the only English language movie we could find in the right time slot was Punch Drunk Love. Oh, wow. And watching, like, a movie that is so deeply about California and even more specifically the San Fernando Valley um, while, Mm. like, thousands and thousands of miles away was, like, a really trippy, beautiful experience. I don't know. I I think about it a lot. Yeah, especially as Punch Drunk Glove is something that can make you feel, like... You're also at your. It, it's it's a feeling that you spoke about with inherent vice that can also be applied to Punch Drunk Love. Like, 
your 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 it's this articulation of of something where you're like trying to find a home you're trying to find like a purpose and you're like a little bit lost it's a little bit dreamy um but it's still familiar no i i totally think that's that's really cool oh yeah i was just gonna say punch drunk love watching it was so funny also because i was like i had not seen it on a big screen ever and i hadn't seen it in probably 10 years and i was like wow like this movie is such an incredible romance and it's not even in my view anywhere close to the best romance that this filmmaker has produced which is not a slight on that movie at all it is a compliment to the movie that we are here to discuss today right right what age do you think you were when a you movies became like one of the main passions in your life and b when you started started to decide to have it to explore a career in writing about it Um, They happen weirdly close together Uh, when I, you know, I'd always paid attention to pop culture Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, I had, I had classically liberal parents who like limited my media intake growing up, but the one thing they did let me watch was the Nightly Simpsons rerun, which is, you're going to have access to like one thing that really gives you kind of a, it's like a codex to the rest of pop culture. Absolutely. It's a time capsule of like two decades of pop culture references. Yeah, so I I really grew up on The Simpsons, and then, you know, when I went away to college and was becoming, you know, more my own person and could spend my own time, that was also when Netflix and streaming really started, and so I, my freshman year of college, I have all these memories of, like, watching, like, 20-odd minutes of a Mad Men episode wherever I could grab it, just, like, on my laptop between classes, which was not the proper way to either watch that show or go about the collegiate experience but you know I had unlimited time on my hands or so it felt like um and then I read Chuck Klosterman's Sex Drugs and Cocoa Puffs in college my first year and there's an essay in there about friends and how the sitcom kind of like modeled for people what their own lives were supposed to look like and the conceptions that put out in the culture. And I was like, oh, I didn't even know, you know, I I think about these things in that way, but I didn't even know it was like a thing to write them down and share them with the world and help other people clarify that. Um, And so that was when I started pursuing internships and other opportunities more in the arts criticism space. Um, And that was when I started working at a website called Flavorwire, which became my first full-time job out of school but yeah it it kind of went hand in hand with realizing like thinking about art critically is something you know serious that people do for their full-time occupations and that it was something that I could really focus on and around the same time um I also remember having a movie going epiphany that I could just go to movies by myself right not have to rely on other people's schedules and in fact that's kind of the best way to do it um and so uh i don't have fond memories of this movie overall but the Birdman is just like forever seared in my brain because it was the first movie where i was just like oh i can just go do this i could just catch a matinee um, and not have to work out anything with anyone Yes, and that was at the Angelica Theater in downtown uh, Manhattan, which is very special to me. And another movie memory that I will share of that theater is that I saw Snowpiercer there. And that movie theater is infamous because it is both underground and right next to a subway station. That's hilarious. Which means that, like, 
every few minutes the entire theater just starts like shaking and rumbling because there's a train nearby which with Snowpiercer made it feel like you were watching it in 40 that's actually perfect holy shit (laughs) yeah it was it was a great memory I bet Murder at the Orient so, Express would also work in that in that theater. Worst movie, but still unstoppable. Unstoppable. Oh, yeah. It's not really a rep theater, but they should they should program like yeah. a special a special series of train movies. Absolutely. Um, do you ever feel like you're you're kind of like I don't want to be just known as the TV person. Like I do. Like there's just I watch so many other things. I like pay attention to so many other things that. Sometimes because TV has become so all-encompassing and so kind of overwhelming for everyone that they look for like guiding lights. At least that's for me. It's like I have I have like people I know who watch television. I text them or something. Be like, hey, is this good? Is this good? Because it's all you need like a a Rosetta Stone right now. But do you ever feel like I'm just I'm I I can also talk about film. I mean, you obviously do in other ways, but I feel like when you're become the TV critic that it's kind of hard for people to look at you another way because they're so desperate for someone to understand any of this. It's an interesting question. I will say, um, so until earlier this year, I worked at The Ringer, which because I was mostly the TV critic, but I was a pop culture writer at what was mostly a sports publication. There was like a little more flexibility just in terms of what you could write about. Um, because, you know, there was less of a mandate to cover everything. And so I did actually write about movies somewhat frequently while I was there, but I'm now, um, one of the two television critics at Variety, which is a very, um, you know, I think I've heard some of my colleagues describe it as almost like the paper of record for the entertainment industry where they really want to weigh in on as much as they can. And they do that comprehensively enough that there are two film and TV critics apiece. And so, you know, because there's so much to cover, I dip my toe into direct film writing a little less. Although I do, you know, I'm active on Letterboxd. I talk about movies on Twitter all the time. But also, it's probably worth saying that film and TV, while I think are still formally distinct, have never had more of an overlap in Absolutely. terms of Absolutely. talent or share of the discourse or IP. what have you. And so, yes, and you know, Marvel is now everywhere. I can't. I've been I watching Monarch. Uh, hide from it. The Godzilla <laughs> TV show. It's okay. Yes. Yeah, I just saw the new Godzilla movie last night, which was amazing. Um, but yeah, it's kind of like I will be reviewing the next Park Chan-wook project because it's an adaptation of The Sympathizer for HBO with Robert Downey Jr. and Sandra Oh, which I could not be more excited for. Is that coming and out I wrote about uh, next year. They don't have a date because, you know, things are pretty disrupted in terms of scheduling right oh, now. Oh, I wonder why. But... I wonder, is there something been happening in the <laughs> industry? Yes. There's a few, a few uh, balls up in the Labor air. Labor disputes, but... I've heard. Labor disputes. Yes. No. No, it's got to be okay. something else. Um, that can't be it. I just reviewed The Curse, which Emma Stone is in. Um, yeah, like, there's still like there's never been more like fluidity between the two things so i don't quite feel like i'm like stuck in a corner because you know tv and film are no longer siloed away from each other um and yeah i think people do you know thanks to the fact that like my byline is not my only public facing outlet necessarily Mm -hmm. um i think people understand that i 
have other passions, including you guys, which is why I'm here. <laughs> you, you don't, you don't like erase yourself elsewhere, and you're like, I only exist for variety. <laughs> this is where you can hear that my takes is, is just no. I even, form. I even watch but television like, that I'm not being paid to review. Believe it or right, not, <laughs> right? Well, and I mean, sometimes we, you we roll our eyes, but it is like you are um, flexing your your like film grammar muscles as you're reviewing television as like there's I mean Park Chan Wook is making a mini series his third mini series right is that right no I think no, second little drummer girl and, though yeah very yeah, underrated yeah, yeah which is very underrated but um uh yeah and where you know a lot of film language and filmmakers yeah as you say is is now making the transition I mean it's made the transition to television but um you, you know, you bring up the curse and that, and there are moments like that where it's like, this could be just a Safdie Brothers movie, but it, it's just now, what, like seven or eight episodes? Ten. It is ten, whole thing, ten hour episodes. long episodes. Yeah, yeah. And it is yeah. very difficult <laughs> right. to sit there. I was going to say, I, 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 everyone loves um, Lutter and I want to explain, I want to experience that genius of comedy, but I'm also just like, I also don't want to tear my skin like, I don't want to take it all off my body with my bare fingernails, so I would rather not do it. Mm-hmm. What if you did that, like, once a week? <sighs> that might be, that might, that might have to be the way, because, yeah, I, have never, I haven't seen any of his projects, and everyone just tells me how great it is. I'm just like, I just don't want to be uncomfortable for that long. Mm-hmm. Well, Nathan, yeah, Nathan for you are, like, it's... straight, like, 22-minute sitcom. Oh, length. that's nice. And then the mm-hmm. rehearsal, the rehearsal is a little more all over the place, but also there's only six episodes. And then the rehearsal is like, or in the uh, curse is like the one that's truly, I think, a difficult set. Yeah. I would not blame anyone. And and because also Nathan Fielder is playing a character where he's not like playing Nathan Fielder. You, you can make an argument. He's not really playing character, but uh, this is the one where it's explicitly like it's a different name. Like he ha- he's married to Emma Stone and stuff like that. Um, but also it's like Nathan for you, like there's a sweetness to that, that is like, it gets a little bit more sinister in the curse and the rehearsal. I think I was going to say that I just finished, um, the latest season of reservation dogs, which I mean is like half hour. Like it's sort of like, um, you just follow this, these group of kids, like that's it. There is no like, um, like an overarching, uh, you know, portrait of america or like a period piece or you know there are ideas about where we come from and um and all this stuff but it's like it's very like self-contained and all that but it's refreshing to like have this um personalized tv show compared to the sympathizers that we have coming or the curses um of the world but it's you know tv is very exciting and challenging but yeah let's get into first exposures suppose um allison if you if you'd like to go first and when you first saw phantom thread when you first entered the house of woodcock so um, yeah any any memories about your pta fandom stuff like that i think um something important to relate about my initial experience of phantom thread was um i saw it three times in the theater when it first came out which is so did I which is not the same thing as saying that I liked it right away I actually did not and I am not the first person to make this analogy but I think a very special thing about this movie is that 
your relationship to the movie um, mirrors kind of the relationship depicted within the movie. Um, Like when you first experience it, you're like, what is going on? I don't understand what's happening. I feel very on edge and defensive. And then you understand where it's going and what the movie really is. And you really cannot understand what this movie is until you watch it all the way through. Um, And then you're like, wait, 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 wait. Now I need to go back and understand what was going on there. And even then I like didn't totally track the emotional logic and the arc that is captured within this movie. And only after kind of a few months and talking with friends and seeing it discussed on the internet did it sort of start to gel. And that's when I saw it the third time, which was both with a live symphony orchestra, which was incredibly cool, performing with score. And um, I think very importantly, it was with an audience of people who had clearly almost entirely seen the movie before. And that Mm -hmm. is a completely different experience than watching it with a bunch of people who are all experiencing it for the first time and literally do not understand how they are supposed to react to the emotional beats of this movie. Because again, you, you can't really understand until the very end, which I'm sure we will talk about. But I feel like that is important to lay out there as we discuss our feelings of this movie is that it took me three full viewings to really like get to a place and I have since seen it and a live orchestra. Yes. And a live orchestra at the Ace Theater in downtown LA. We love it. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm insanely jealous. That's so cool. Yeah. And I've since seen it like probably three or four more times. Um, but yes, I three times in 2017 alone. Maybe well, maybe it's too difficult to pinpoint Although, can you think of a moment in your second or third rewatch where you're like, you have like an aha moment? Where you're like, this is what PTA is coming is going for? Not necessarily with the whole, but I remember, mm-hmm. I was thinking about this when I was rewatching it this time. Like, when you're first watching the movie and you get to that moment sort of towards the end where Reynolds goes to um, Cyril and says, I think I've made a mistake. I should not have let this woman into my life. And you see Alma looming over his shoulder. And the first time I watched that, I think you're supposed to feel kind of like dread or like, oh, no, she's she's overhearing something she shouldn't. Will she be hurt? And when you understand what the real dynamic is among the three of them then it's like a comedy moment. It's like, oh, this is funny that, you know, Cyril and Alma are kind of triangulating literally over his head and he doesn't understand that he's been kind of pincer movemented <laughs> into um, enclosure. And the movie is just full of moments like that where they read tonally completely differently when you understand what the story is and that it's kind of a, a comedy not... And necessarily in the beat for beat, haha sense, although it is also kind of that, but in the like, this is a positive story. It is a going towards a happy ending, and it's not yeah. what you think it might be when you're first watching, which is like a potential murder suicide. Like, uh, you are waiting right. for someone to die right. yeah. the entire first time you were watching this movie. Well, that's, <laughs> yeah. The potential murder suicide becomes more of a uh, punchline. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. I I mean, it felt weird to say it, but it's like, uh, and to amplify what you you said, it's like, 
it's the most uh, um, expressive version of what PTA has always done. He always makes comedies. He always makes happy endings. You know, to uh, me, he always makes these like movies that will piv- that will pivot in tone. I mean, There Will Be Blood is not no. a happy ending, but I, I see what you mean. I, I think it's a, no to Daniel. It's a happy ending, right? He crushed religion. He crushed evil. Okay. All like, right. All right. All right. No, you know what? I'll, 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 I'll let you like, have it. I'll let you have it. Well, yeah. to, to the characters, you know, like Freddie in the master, you know, like he's lying down at the beach and he is without Lancaster Dodd. Like he, he's just like started hey, where he I began. Stand like he's happy. You know what? I stand corrected. And, uh, you know, um, I was 18 when this came out. Um, I worked at a movie theater, movie theater that was destroyed by the pandemic, but it's fine. It wasn't really all that great. This was at, at an age when you're like, everyone who works at a movie theater loves movies. That is not the case. People just want a job when they're a teenager. <laughs> I was like, who wants to talk about the long goodbye? No, no one, one, you loser. Keep it pushing. Um, and, okay. I heard that a lot. Um, and I worked there with high school friends, and we tend to forget it was a job. But, uh, you know, that's for another that's for another day. And we, we had a lot of fun there. And the 2017 Oscar season... Or I guess 2018 Oscar season. Well, that that'll always be tied to working there because I saw like all the nominees. Those are pretty that decent Oscars um, too. Even though we got them kind of late. Yeah, right. Um, and I saw them all for free, which is really neat. And I saw this three times um, in that theater. And I was, and I just like, I got to go for another hit, <laughs> and because I, I I decided that uh, P.T. Anderson was my favorite filmmaker by then um i was tracking this movie or tracking what, what does that mean like i known about the production with my friends from high school who are also big like threadheads, uh and we were like wow we knew this when it was called like 1950s daniel day lewis fashion that was my project. favorite title I'm, this, I'm it sucks that they didn't like, stick with it title 1950s was, daniel day lewis art, art fashion project um, yeah yeah, I think it would have looked a little long in the marquee, but you know, maybe, maybe shorten a little. Um, I, I love this movie so much. Um, it's hypnotic. I've never seen anything like it. I've never felt anything like it. It's so weird. It's so funny. It's um, romantic in a way that I've never seen romance at the time uh, written. Um, I, he gave me, you know, it's like listening to Paul Thomas Anderson interviews is so fun because he's just like, you know, he's, he's like a chill California kid and it's just like, yeah, you know, we just, you know, do this. And I took over the camera and, you know, of course he like draws from this lineage of like Robert Altman and Jonathan Demi, of course. And, and he's all about collaboration and this movie has like no credited cinematographer and he's just like, yeah, you know, like the uh, the camera crew kind of helped me, but like, you know, it's like I work with the crew, and it's just. Um, and anyway, like around that time when the movie came out, I was like, oh, what what are the movies that inspired this? And then I went and saw like, the Passionate Friends and Rebecca and all these like, gothic like, nineteen forties films, and it's you know, uh, um, no, yeah, this this movie is so so good. I've seen it countless times. 
first time I saw this movie was at the Arclight Hollywood, which currently, I will not say rest in power, but remains dormant. And it's a very important movie theater in the Los Angeles uh, constellation of movie palaces. And this was, um, because it's like one of those theaters where, like if things are in limited release in LA, it's like one of two theaters where it was playing. Um, they would also do things like... When films say New York and L.A., that's what they mean by L.A. Yes. Although both <laughs> yeah. that and the other theater that used to be the other outlet for that are now closed. So uh, we'll, see what's, oh. we'll see what's going on there. But um, gotcha. they would do these things, like make real events of releases. Like they, re- they gave us a bound book that was like a guide to Phantom Thread if you purchased mm-hmm. a ticket to see it at that theater, I cannot imagine how much money it must've cost. Cause it was You're like, right. They're like, operating at a loss stock. at that point. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, at that point they're just kind of, I'm sure it came right, out of right, right, budget right, right, just right. bribing various Los Angeles, uh, guild members Smart. and voters. But, um, it, it, yeah. one of the things that I think gave that theater real following is that they are very serious about treating movies like events. They introduce every movie with an mm-hmm. usher. They don't let you go in if you're more than two and 10 minutes late. Like they're very serious. And that was part of it of like, okay, there's a new Paul Thomas Anderson movie. We are all here to like see everyone this was and best dressed in suits Here's and stuff. Book. Like, all right, let's watch this film. Yes. Yes. Everyone was in ball gowns. Yeah. I also forgot to mention, not like a huge detail, but, um, I saw, um, I saw my third viewing with um, my grandmother, and now both both sets of grandparents have. Oh, there you go. On this episode. Um, yeah. Well, I don't. The thing is, and this has always been a weird. We've we've like given you a lot of runway. We've well, to me, it's not. It's like I've always had this weird thing with PTA where I've always loved basically all of the films I've ever seen from him, but he was never one of my guys. Um, and there's just certain filmmakers like that where, like, me neither. Um, like to me, I probably love as many films from PTA uh, that I do as like uh, Tony Scott, but I consider Tony Scott one of my guys. It's just this weird kind of I like connection or like emotional connection to a, a certain kind of film or a certain director and their style. Um, but yeah, I've never just. Dis- I know you've said the yes. same thing about the Coen Yes, it's it's similar. Said, it's similar. And to me, the, actually, the with the Coens, watching Hail Caesar kind of be like, maybe these are my guys. Um, but I still, again, I love all of their movies. It's just not, it's just when someone's like, who are your favorite directors? I'm like, oh, Michael Mann, John Carpenter, Tony Scott. It's just like, those names don't really pop up in my head. Um, so I only saw this once. I saw this in theaters. Um, I loved it. But I didn't, the whole comedy aspect was kind of lost on me. There's some funny moments in, for sure, even on your first viewing. But like you said, uh, Allison, it's just like one of those movies that if it's a completely different watch on a rewatch and it's com- you have a completely different perspective on almost every single scene you watch and a completely different take on the performances and the intended emotions and the subtext, it's all different. Um, and so this was my second time ever seeing it for this podcast. I just saw it uh, earlier today. And it sucks because when I was watching, I'm like, why don't I just watch this like every year? Like, this is amazing. Why am I, why is, why is this my second watch? Um, it just, it, it kind of just blew me away. Um, cause it's like a perfect movie. 
I, I I always liked it, and I always I loved it. It was always on like near the top of my list, uh, 2017 lists. But I just for some reason I just it, it was with PTA and like certain other filmmakers, I just kind of take them for granted. I'm like, well, yeah, it's a PTA movie, so of course it's good. It doesn't like shock me. Um, I kind of said something similar about Scorsese, but I, I but still, I I just there's just certain filmmakers that I think we all just were like, well, they're god tier, they're great. So when they make a good movie, I'm not just like shitting my pants. Like, oh yeah, they made a good movie. That's what they usually do. They make good movies. Um, but watching it this time, certainly, like, th- this is also a time when like he's entered, like, sort of elder statesman era. Like he's like he's like one of the '90s greatest filmmakers, and like, like he's up there with like Tarantino and like. Wes Anderson like I, I don't blame you for thinking that because I I would assume like most enthusiasts and critics have the mindset of like oh yeah like this is this is what they're interested in talking about like this is how they're reshaping themselves in their later career it's just like you know I wouldn't put it past you for but I think on this rewatch it's a great movie go ahead Oh, I was going to say, this is a, speaking of watching it once a year, this is a great movie to watch at this at, right, specific absolutely. time of year. Absolutely. Like, it's such a, it's so wintry, it's so bathed in, like, either warm candlelight or very cold, frosty daylight, and uh, there's this, the incredible New Year's party scene. Um, like, it's one of the few great New Year's Eve movies, uh, no disrespect to, that's one of the Gary Marshall ones, right? You know that that's Sleep Day, not New Year's Day. Uh, but... Like, I love returning to this movie and letting it just wash over you and having it be this, like, cozy comfort watch. Because, again, when you're first watching it, it's so destabilizing and it's such a fun development that it can kind of turn into something that's almost soothing. Yeah. You've seen posts online that are timed when it strikes midnight to when Reynolds arrives to meet Alma at the um, New Year's Eve gathering which is really neat. Um, and also, it's, it was just perfect. That was put out a Christmas um, focus. I saw it in February. The movie. So I think that... I, so did it did it release limited in December, or did it already start? It was it was limited earlier December, and then wide, um, like early January, Christmas Day. Um, I don't think it was finished until like pretty late, because I remember people being like freaking out. It skipped festivals. Yeah, it didn't do any festivals. Also, yeah, like it was yeah. really hard to get into press screenings, even among like people I knew here in LA. And like it came out like at Christmas, and I think it came out at Christmas like in New York and LA to like qualify. So I think it probably rolled out wider, like deeper into twenty eighteen. Was inherent vice before this? But I mean yeah, was it was that the fourteen. Was there something and that also between played... those two? New York Film Festival. No. Three, three years. He typically takes... I guess it took four years for the newest one. Or was it five? Four. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, no, it was four. Um, I guess... Yeah. Um, well, it, it was funny because then The Master is before Inherent Vice and it's only two years in between those films. And three years before uh, there will be. What a time. No, five years between really? the master and Dolby Blood. Oh, 2007. Why did I think Dolby oh, Blood? 2007. Um, it, and to me, another thing was I was rewatching it is like, so like the last PTA film I saw before this, like in, when I mean in like today, uh, was Licorice Pizza, and I think I saw it in theaters. Um, 
and I really like that movie. I think that movie's great. I think it's like has so many great moments, but I kind of was just realized watching this like this to me and this is just to me is just on a whole other level of existence. I just think there is this some there's this movie is so sublime and has this vulnerability and elegance and grace towards it while also being this like pretty prickly comedy in a lot of ways. It's just I don't know. I just and it helps that the Johnny Greenwood score is like one of the best ever. Um but it has the, the way this film moves and the way it lets scenes breathe. It's just this level of effortlessness that is yeah, it, it took my breath away a lot of the time because I just realized, oh yeah, this movie is like just you can't really make better movies than this. It looks incredible. It's well paced. The acting is absolutely operating on five different levels in any given scene and it's one of those things though it's like if you wrote read like the plot on wikipedia you wouldn't think that uh one of the most impactful scenes is is uh woodcock eating uh omelet very slowly that's like one of the biggest scenes in the movie is him just slowly looking at her and eating an omelet and that has like the like that's the climax so if you read that, you're like... I say that all the monumental. time. Yeah. It's a it's a twist. Like, it is a movie with a twist ending. But the twist ending is just someone has an emotional reaction to something that you're not Absolutely. expecting them to. It's not like you, fi- you find out someone is someone that they're not. Or you find out that someone's been dead this whole time. It's just, you know, the dynamic that has been shaping up between these two people is not what you thought it was and that recasts everything that comes before it but it's such a small objectively small thing you're so yeah right. it's it, it's funny because yeah, yeah if you read that you're like so he eats an omelet with made with butter and but like that her putting butter on it is like has so much going for it one that whole scene is i was watching it this time like oh that's fucking hilarious that whole like her pouring the water as loudly as possible and just him looking i i so you really can't appreciate the com <clears throat> the comedy besides like a few leslie manville lines in the first um time seeing it you can only truly appreciate the comedy on a rewatch because you kind of just because like you said we're we're kind of like well what's happening is she trying to kill him is this like what is intended what is not intended is are they gonna like divorce whatever whatever but it's but then you can just appreciate yeah he she just looks at him it's like here's some butter fuck with me just like butter mm. on your omelet what's up and it's just i don't know it, it can just it just can be really really funny he just he just has no idea what to do he's never been challenged like this and you see it this fragility um, that is not uncommon with these latest um, PTA pairings that we see. I mean, like I, I thought of um, Gary and Alana from Licorice Pizza with a a lot of these two um, where they're just trying to come to the middle. I mean, can they have it all? Can they have, the career and the self-acceptance and the codependency. Um, they can. They just, you know, it's um, that that omelet sequence comes at the point of some kind of catharsis. Um, we're unsure if that will last a right. while. 
I don't, I, you know, you know, I, I don't think it will. I, I, they're just going to be back to uh, the toilet and they're going to call the doctor again. Um, and then Cyril is going to hear it from Reynolds and it's, you know, but the repetition, that's their, that's their form of love. And they found their form of love. It's, it's amazing stuff. Cause, um, oh, I was going to go on about it something. And that, and that scene is so amazing, um, that, you know, Reynolds already refuses the water, but then she still pours the cup of water into the glass. And it's like, these, these are the things that you leave <laughs> like the theater, uh, thinking about, but I mean, what's so amazing is, like, P.T. Henderson, like, um, is almost setting up these hurdles for him to jump over um, as a writer, where it's like, these things shouldn't no. be cinematic, but yet he really, I mean, not just with this, like, are you kidding me? You're making a movie about Scientology? Really? And then he's going to adapt this really um, complex idiosyncratic Thomas Pynchon novel. Are you kidding? And then like licorice pizza, like is very like minuscule, obscure California, uh, references and like, like niche, like a little bit like, like to the people that care about those things when they were happening, like you shouldn't be this accessible. And yet you know how to direct actors so well. And you write these rich and vivid characters it's magic. It's it's literally he's Houdini. I don't know. You can sew almost anything into the canvas of a coat. When I was a boy, I started to hide things in the linings of the garments. Things that only I knew were there. <laughs> Secrets. Good morning. Will you have dinner with me? Yes. I feel as if I've been looking for you for a very long time. You look beautiful. Very beautiful. I have things I want to do. Things I simply cannot do without you. Reynolds has made my dreams come true. And I have given him what he desires most in return. <laughs> Every piece of me. So why are you not married? <laughs> Her arrival has cast a very long shadow. She's barely looked at you this evening, has she? May I warn you of something? My brother can feel cursed that love is doomed for him. I don't like the fabric. Maybe one day you'll change your taste. Maybe I like my own taste. Just enough to get you into trouble. Perhaps I'm looking for trouble. Stop! There is an air of quiet death in this house. You're not cursed. You're loved by me. Stop playing this game. What game? What precisely is the nature of my game? All your rules and your clothes and all this money and everything is a game. This was an ambush. Stop! Are you sent here to ruin my evening? possibly my entire life. Stop it! Whatever you do, do it carefully. It's like, really useful. 
useful, I think, to compare this movie, not just to other movies in Paul Thomas Anderson's filmography, although that is incredibly, you know, a rich text on its own, but um, I was watching this movie and was thinking how much it reminded me of, there are a bunch of movies out this year that I think are not necessarily explicitly inspired by Phantom Thread, but are playing in the same ballpark in a way that throws into relief, like, just how masterful and how in command this movie is like I was thinking I just saw Maestro which is Bradley Cooper's movie about Leonard Bernstein another revered artistic genius and the creative marriage he had with his wife that was very unconventional but enabled his artistic practice and you know there there are things in Maestro that I like but it is not as complete a statement on what that kind of relationship can look like and mean as this movie Mm -hmm. or um a movie I am less generous towards, Saltburn, is attempting the same right. um, British, you're brought into some foreign environment that's also very wealthy and it's destabilizing and it turns out the dynamic is not what you think it is, but Saltburn just doesn't handle that as adroitly as Phantom Thread. And then the final one is The Taste of Things, which is a oh, okay. gorgeous yeah. movie that I wholeheartedly endorse about food and romance and what that can mean. But it's also a little bit more straightforward about it than like she is making him. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. the goat, Uh, And her, her former real life partner with whom she is a child uh, is playing her love interest. Yeah. It's like the most French thing in the world, but, um, you know, it that movie again is amazing, but is a little more straightforward and less mm-hmm. um tricky than Phantom Thread, so you're not like on your toes the whole time. Like her the mushroom omelets that Juliette Binoche makes in that movie do not poison her love interest. Um, I I the title is some you know, difficult French title, but um, I also heard intriguing things about the new Fred Wiseman documentary that that's about, um, you know, a French culinary experience and, and seeing the, the life of fine dining, which sounds intriguing on its own, but just how to film, um, you know, how food brings us together and, and brings us apart and the complexities of your reactions to food. And that's, that could also be interesting. I was thinking, because I just saw it last night, uh, that this reminded me of May December, mm. um, just in the way of, uh, you know, realizing each other's psychological needs, um, what what spending time with two people will bring out in each other, um, your deepest insecurities. To, it, that's that's a I'm still processing that film, but um, yeah, I, I certainly thought of that. Yeah, I think that's almost in a in a complimentary way. Um, when we were when we were yeah. chatting before, yeah. you also said um, Tar has elements of Phantom Thread, which I totally agree with. Both from the like kind of faint overlay of gothic supernatural feelings to the kind of unpredictable and surprising bits of comedy that are coming throughout to the again just like mm-hmm. complete understanding of this singular tone and sensibility and you know there, there's a very like elite circle of movies that I think are able to achieve as unique and sustained an emotional reaction as this one is and it kind of 
places it in, in a rarefied club, even among other PTA movies, as, as much as I love him. And, and it's just, how do you, how do you, like, create a perfectionist out of whole cloth is something that's impressive in, in, in and of itself. Um, and, you, yeah, uh, I, I agree with what you said. You can completely see reality where Reynolds is prancing around singing Apartment for Sale. I um, another. I think another it's really voice. interesting, Allison, when you talked about this idea, you know, like a movie about this relationship and like you know the tortured artist and someone coming into their life and like we've seen that a lot before and it's usually you know this mysterious you know this mysterious man who has you know a lot of toxic things about him but is brilliant at what he does and is like kind of mysterious you're trying to figure it out and then this young woman comes along and is being like the audience surrogate trying to experience their genius firsthand and trying to figure out oh and like being being in the witness of their cruelty and you know their moments of you know breaking down and seeing you know the the real the real life behind the artist and this kind of almost stereotypical and like tropey way of like making film making films about artists specifically men um and how a lot of like their the female leads are used as audience surrogates or innocent bystanders just you know trying to navigate through this other man's life of greatness and complex brilliance and all this i think what this movie does that just kind of puts all those others to shame in a lot of ways, is it uniquely puts the perspective in both characters while also giving Alma full autonomy and a fully sketched character um, and have her own like issues and have her own power in deciding the future and parts of their relationship rather than just some bystander who just uses, uses as an audience surrogate. Because, and it was funny because I was watching this, again, I haven't seen this since 2018. Um, I thought the movie started in Alma's perspective. That was how I remembered it, was that it was it started with her, and it was basically her perspective for the entire thing. I completely forgot that it completely starts in Woodcock's perspective. And how it doesn't become her movie until she enters it. And even when it becomes her movie, it's still not necessarily following her in every single scene. It still it still has it still roots itself in uh, uh, Reynolds's perspective at times, especially like when he's sick and uh, when he's talking with clients and things like that, or with Cyril. So it does this juggling act of him not being this like larger than life character. Obviously, he's not based off a real person. I'm guessing, right? There's no Reynolds Woodcock. Loosely, he's been inspired Loosely, by, yeah. um, I think, Charles James' is right. a name that comes up in American British Couture, Couturier. I think he has elements of, like, Cristobal Balenciaga, but he's very much yeah. a composite and wholesale creation. <clears throat> he's not, like, a literal historical figure. It's also lends to the Cristobal Balenciaga um, reading because that's who um, Dan Lewis, like, right. uh, researched and after. This And that helps, um, it, in which why it, it also helped Tar is that... There is not some beholden Wikipedia points they have to get to or this like specific character trait that they have to show very vividly. Like it is not Elton John 
Yes, there is. Uh, I knew you were going to make that. Because Lydia Tarr is a real um, Elton John. It's not Elton John. It's not Freddie Mercury. It's not Winston Churchill. It's these like kind of it's these own characters that they can have their own real complex relationship with, rather than you know a fucking movie that that people make so they can be shown at history class in twenty years from now when the teacher's drunk. Like it can be actually like a movie. Um. And so I think that is why this film succeeds in so well in establishing both perspectives and giving both characters autonomy rather than what, making one this mysterious kind of undis like un, you can't figure him out because he's so brilliant or you know and prickly and not giving and not having you know her be this angel you know innocent who has been you know witnesses the greatness of this man but also you know is uh, the victim of his cruelty. It's this common. It's this nuance to it that adds so much to it and makes in because it's it could be a very troping film, uh, like a lot of PTA, um, but he does it in a way that handles the much right. more human nature of it. Normally, I assume you're off writing by yourself, but this one was a little bit different. I think you had some collaboration. Normally, I'm by myself, or when I get lonely, I kind of turn to Joanne, my producer, and share things with her, or even Dylan, the editor, but mostly by myself. But this time, um, I turned to Daniel early on, and I knew him well enough, and we've kept in touch over the years, and I knew like it would be foolish to just take like a year and write by myself when I'm writing something for him. I have to sort of take him, and we have to sort of sit in the same room together and really work together. And he should, probably should have some kind of co-writing you know, credit, but he, you don't know. That's okay. <laughs> and so w was the germ of it always this, we're going to make a love story, we're going to make a story of this man and this woman, and that's, that's how you began? Yeah, like you imagine a notebook, right? Man and a woman, romantic, sister, question mark, gothic romance, all those little things that you just kind of keep noting to yourself. And then going back and watching Rebecca again, and then watching Vertigo again, and watching all those things again, and looking for clues, and reading Daphne du Maurier, and kind of filling up on stuff that was in this venue, you know, Caroline Blackwood, like finding, oh, you know, Amazon likes or recommend this, if you like, oh, well, that's, that's good, you know, and just more and more and more of that. And, um, the story was a, f a little bit more fully formed than I'm, I'm, I'm making it out to be. There was the idea that there was a very strong-willed man and a woman who enters his life and what happens when they discover that when he's weak, he's at his best in terms of the relationship and how that affects their future. So the exciting part became the research because neither one of us really knew much of anything about couture or fashion in the 50s, so that became... You seem so couture right now. <laughs> you seem like this is a natural element for you. I'll have you know that this sweater is cashmere. <laughs> but I think it's also very difficult for people to process that. Like, I think um, there were a lot of... Not bad faith, but there were a lot of sort of misreadings of the film when it first came out that I think have faded with time, but it's because like Alma's agency and power within the relationship are not economic or structural. Like it's not like she has her own livelihood. It's not like she um, suddenly comes up with like a real material way to affect the power balance between them. It is entirely on the terrain of yeah. emotion and, you know, just like, this is the weird, ineffable flow between us that no one outside of our partnership will ever fully understand because it's not 
apparent from either of our biographies or life circumstances, but like, you know, the doctor who is, I guess, interviewing her, her interlocutor that gives the voiceover device is, you know, yeah. never going to wrap his head fully around it, but it just works. And also all of it is in service to, you know, Reynolds is a genius, but I think one of the mo- things the movie does so subtly and so well is make it clear that a, the house of Woodcock is a much larger endeavor than just Reynolds. And I think it's so crucial that what the first poisoning does is it removes him. And in fact, makes him the person who jeopardizes the work. And it is entirely on the, the fleet of seamstresses he employs and Cyril and Alma who rolls up her sleeves and gets working in the atelier to fix it. And it's like his creativity is this muse that he has to service, but it's also, it, it takes so much more than that to make his work a reality. And therefore it takes him off the pedestal a little bit. And I just love that the movie does even that playing field, but not in so obvious a way as like, she's a genius seamstress and actually she can design too or something like that. It's just completely like, no, her specific approach to this person and the way she pushes him is something that he needed, but never understood that he needed and could never articulate, which is this like, again, total beautiful fantasy of romance. Like that's what everyone wants. It's for someone to give you what you need before you even think of needing it. And I think another fond memory I have of this movie is that I showed it to my now partner when we were dating early on as just kind of a like, Hey, this is important to me. This is like a way you can get to know. <laughs> I'm going to poison you later like, on. Just heads up. Don't worry about it. Yes. <laughs> well, we are both very, Do you like mushrooms in your omelets? <laughs> well, he was watching it and was like, well, I actually went through like a huge French omelet phase That's in college, so which, you know, uh, <laughs> checks out. But then we get to the end and he like immediately understood like what was happening. He was like, Oh, and that was a real point in his favor, shall we say. But I, my point is you should just show Phantom Thread to people you're dating. And it's a great, a great, well, the funny, test. the it's funny thing is during take. this, yeah. Oh no, I, sure didn't, I did Danny? not watch this with Danny, but the funny thing is the, this rewatch, it just also gave me like, when I first watched it, I was, I, I never, I never had like a real serious relationship um, before. So watching it now, as I'm in the middle of one, um, it's, it really does change your perspective on the whole thing. And not because I'm like, oh, I'm Reynolds Woodcock. No, it's just that, that there is this tug of war sometimes uh, with your partner and that how, and you have to kind of manage it and kind of call it out to yourself because you will do it sometimes just subconsciously, just because, you know, we all have, we all can have like these things that bother us and these like kind of annoyances or grievances, but we can make it into this whole battle um, if we, you know, but like just to kind of check yourself on and just see Woodcock just not even have that kind of filter and just be completely like, now this bothers me. I'm going to bring it up. You don't have breasts. And it's just like, whoa, holy shit. Okay. Um, or like you eat too loudly. You ride, you rode in here like, like I'm on a horse and like these Things that sometimes you have, like, the instinct to say or whatever just because of, let's say you had a bad day or you're focused and you just, that instinct of just saying what's on your mind but understanding, that's not fair, that's not nice, why would I say that to someone I love? Um, and then just have him say it mm-hmm. out loud and having to navigate that. It's really, yeah, it does, like, change your perspective on things. But also just the, I think also the whole 
parts of him being sick and being cared for. It is that thing that it kind of, I, I understood it almost a bit more this time around of like, we all kind of want that. At the end of the day, we all want to be held, held on like to and like weighted on hand and feet and just like completely taken care of and correct, like and caressed and coddled and feel safe and feel comforted and feel like you're loved. Um, and yeah, it's like this movie makes being, it almost makes being sick kind of, uh, you know, attractive. You're like, oh man, I could, I could use a few ill days so my, you know, loved one can just, or, you know, my, the love of my life can just wait on me and make me feel better. Um, well, famously, that was the my inspiration met. was um, PTA has been in a long-term partnership with Maya Rudolph, a queen among us. And yeah. he specifically said, like, I was sick and she was taking care of me. And I was like, she seems to kind of like this. So and that was along with watching <laughs> Rebecca yeah. on TCM was part of the seed from which this whole thing sprung. Mm -hmm. And just one of the many things I love about the resolution of this movie is that it allows... Alma to both challenge him but also have such sincere respect and admiration for both his talent and like the fact that he needs structure and routine to facilitate the creativity like he already has when we enter into the story he takes care of the designs and Cyril takes care of the business and then you realize like Alma is the third wheel that they didn't know they needed because she takes care of Reynolds and she understands you know, it's not that, like, she forces him to completely abandon a routine. Like, she introduces a new routine that, in fact, um, is better than the one that came before because there's this sort of creative life cycle she observes. If he has this great outpouring of a fashion show or a dress or a couture presentation, and then after that's done, he needs to retreat and recover. And I think what she fundamentally notices is, like, no, he, he actually needs that more than more often needs to, you know, return to a passive position more frequently than he was before. And like, in addition to enabling their marriage to work, I think it is something that allows him to work in a healthier and more sustainable way after a fashion. And she doesn't like completely do away with his, life and meaning it's that she understands how to adjust it in a way that actually like even better enables the work of the house of woodcock than the status quo before she entered the picture mm -hmm. and what's a better need for reynolds to be met than to refurbish the house of woodcock is just for uh alma because of course he's not gonna admit like oh alma was the third wheel but Rather, she was the uh, she's going to be the creative inspiration for things that I'm sure Cyril will understand and recognize. Um, as of course, she has that line later on when she's like, "I've grown grown quite fond of her," um, and has seen that she's done Reynolds some good. Um, and I saw a reading online that was like, he takes off um, the suit jacket later on in the movie. Um, to shed oh. the haunting of his mom that like has the um, the hair in the jacket and like oh my god he's so pleasant. um and it was and I I read um, past and future guests Allison Pakura's letterbox entry and I thought this related back to what Clay was mentioning 
Um, this movie is just a bunch of people getting vibe checked and living to tell the tale. And really, that is that is true. As this, the, I mean, you know, what's more clinical than like a dress than like working in the fashion industry when you are um, dressing the uh, the the elites and the rich and the upper class and amuse. <laughs> Like you're not, you're just, you're just like, you know, sculpting out these, these body types and, you know, these fittings, um, for outfits that, that won't be your own, um, at first. Um, but yeah, I, I forgot what's going on. I'm I, watching it this time. I was just fucking blown away by Vicky Capes' performance. I, it's astounding. Cause how many credits did she have before this? Not many, right? Or am I dumb? Let's. I think she mostly worked in in Europe. Uh, well, I think this was like her first yeah, Hollywood Europe, movie. Yeah. yeah. Well, we covered her before in Hannah. Oh yeah, she was like, but also, yeah, it was she like was tiny. In Hannah. Um. Uh. There was a film that PTA cited in Letterbox as being slow that he mentioned like oh she's really good in this i'm trying to well there's this incredible like meta textual thing going on where like in addition to alma coming into this world and challenging absolutely established genius you also have daniel day lewis who's this notorious method actor who immerses in his roles and can be quite difficult to be around because his commitment is so total and he's so driven by his work and then you have vicky creeps who you Almost, I would say like 99% of especially American audiences going to see this yeah. movie had never encountered her before and she just walks in yeah. and holds her own against him and clearly you know destabilizes him or at least is like a good countervailing force because so often like late period Daniel Day-Lewis performances are just the entire movie is built around him whether it's you know Lincoln or There'll Be Blood and to see Daniel Day-Lewis in a two or arguably three-hander that is like genuinely as well-rounded and evenly balanced as this one is, is so impressive because he so often just kind of like sucks up all the oxygen in the screen with his own He's, aura. She, she, yeah, yeah. Uh, the film that PTA okay. cites was Chambermaid Lynn, which, which is a, it's a German film. She is, at this time, I think, younger like she's like what 28 27 or i whatever very you know a young um, actress in a lot of ways coming in and saying and be like hey hold your own okay mid-30s okay she's oh, like mid-30s she, yeah. uh, but like hold your own against daniel day lewis and you're gonna have as much as screen time as he has maybe even more figure that out she does like it's I can't think of anything more intimidating. Like you said, Allison, he does suck up the oxygen in every room he's in. Because, and like, you know, like he is considered to be, at least in the modern era, one of the greatest actors ever. Um, and you're gonna, and, right. Maybe my favorite actor? I don't know. Well, mine's Denzel, answer, so it's not like, like we have any unique answers. Um, yeah. But I... Yeah. I think that is something that I can't even fathom doing, and she does it with a level of grace and also complete conviction. Like, she just puts everything into this performance. Every single little ounce of herself. Uh, I mean, like like she said, like she said at the beginning, is like, you know, that's Mm -hmm. what I give to uh, Reynolds, is everything. 
and I it's a performance that blew me away. I always I I think she's a great actress in general. I liked her in old. I think I've always just liked her in things, and so but right and and seeing Bergman her in this is just like Excellent. oh wow yeah she's just she probably should just be one of the great working actors we have currently. Um, it's kind of a shame that she's not in more stuff, but honestly, whatever she wants to do, I'm cool with. But yeah, I think she's just yeah. She still works, but, like... I just don't know how every great director like isn't, like, begging the, her to be in their movie. The like, Shyamalan had it right. Like, I don't know how they're not, like, mm-hmm. on her doorstep, just like, please, 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 please be in my movie, please. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and, and it shows the kind of collaborator that Daniel Day-Lewis had um, become, um, along with being a totemic actor, um... P.T. Anderson described his contributions to the script as almost needing a, a co-writer, co-writing credit. Um, there was that much input. And I think with that, you see that there is a um, match, like an even match between um, Reynolds and Alma, that it doesn't feel like, yes, Vicky Creeps, this is like one of the great, like, <laughs> like a, a Star is Born performances. And it's this ability to not have her feel overwhelmed by um, Daniel DeLewis's turn. I mean, this, it's so funny because, like, yes, like, in a different way, like, Reynolds Woodcock is a, an, as an animated character as Daniel Plainview, um, but just in a different version, in a different um, dress up. And you get the sense that there is this ability that she can infiltrate him, like playing this own routine that he does. And then like that, she then begins to manipulate him. It's not like, oh, I'm going to manipulate you and outsmart you. And like the movie is about that. But it's like the learning to accept like each other. And it's and the performances act the same way as, as the characters do almost because like. Because uh, you can see, like, oh, Daniel Day-Lewis, like, accepting this, like, young ingenue. Well, one of the things I love about Alma as a character is she's not manipulative. She, in fact, is just incredibly straightforward and transparent, with the exception of maybe the first poisoning. But I think this performance is something that really yeah, I guess that's what I was lives in too. the reactions. Okay. Like, her entrance into this movie is she's literally stumbling in. She's making noise, which is the thing that... Reynolds cannot abhor and eventually has to make space for or cannot stand and needs to make a uh, space for in his life. And so much of the early establishment of who that character is, I think is easy to miss in the first watch, both because you don't, you're not looking for it. But something I noticed this time is, is when Cyril intrudes on their designing session and starts, you know, smelling her scent and very fucking weird and everything. Very weird. But you, you see like, on her face she's clearly thinking like what the fuck is this and what is going on and she's not trying to compose herself or play it cool she's just very transparently like this is weird even if she's not you can always tell when she's uncomfortable it's not like a secret yeah the emotional honesty on her face i think is this early hint that that character isn't going to like modify herself or restrain herself for reynolds or cyril's benefit um, which is not like a conventional show of strength. 
but it's a very real one that I think presages what happens next or even like her big confrontational moment is the dinner which this time because I was actually checking the timestamps the dinner is the exact halfway point of the movie it's like when the whole thing kind of twists on its fulcrum (laughs) and you know when she's yelling and then eventually she just can't even say words anymore and just goes and and it's incredible but um I just love the clothes and the yes and I just love how I think one of the things that makes Alma such a confrontational hard to handle thing for Reynolds is that she refuses to modify herself at all and that's something you don't necessarily see in her statements although sometimes she does say it openly it's mostly just it's like in her physical comportment it's that she's a model but she's a little more inelegant and not quite as poised as you would expect someone in that profession to be and it's because she just refuses to modulate herself and it's all in the physicality which is why one of many reasons Vicky Creeps is incredible in this oh of course of course and um and it's all it's all in like oh this is it's it's at that um at the dinner when she's like this is all facade this is all play pretend this is all like fake um and through that you you recognize like I can't be a part of something where I have to modify modify myself um, to fit into this weird routine where you need a silent which she does acquiesce um, to at one point you can see you like to, later and she's like to be lightly like, buttering her toe like she tries but then just was like fuck it mm-hmm. well like when Cyril explains to her like he needs this for his work she's like okay because she again respects the work like she let, wants to contribute and becomes eventually like a, a seam, another seamstress in the um, House of Woodcock. But that's another like thing is she has no time for his excessive fussiness, but she also understands that like he does need to live this very constrained life in order to do his best to perform as well as he needs to. And she does want to like enable that. Like it's not like she's trying to right. completely throw him off his game or, right. or own him completely. She right. wants to help him. We have a kind of um, mile markers through our film of, of breakfasts with the Woodcock siblings, you know, and you can kind of measure the film by how breakfast goes. We have one early on that establishes the tone of the house. This one is about three quarters of the way through when the dutiful Cyril, Leslie, played by Leslie Manville, turns up the volume on Reynolds and, and basically... You re- all, all the truth comes out about her being the elder sibling who who's really <laughs> in charge, right. you know. And if you've ever had a fight, if you have a brother or a sister, if you've ever been in one of those matches, um, you know that it is as brutal as it gets to have a fight with a sibling. Like because a sibling can say things that no one else can, and they know just how to get right at the center of what is going to cut you down or put you in place. Yeah. So and these two have a, have an empire. Really, yeah. How, how would you? Uh, and so, uh, so he is uh, an extraordinary dressmaker. She, how would you characterize uh, their relationship? What does she do, and what does she bring? She kind of runs everything. Really. She runs everything, um, but she, well, she spoils him. You know, she allows him to be a spoiled baby, and that's what keeps the engine running of this, of this place. She probably just inherited the, a relationship that he had with his mother, which was basically. You're the golden child who can sew, who can do all this stuff. You're this creative type, so let me make sure your feet never touch the ground. 
So his elder sister has carried that mantle for him and allowed him to behave in certain ways that are really, well, they're unacceptable in real life, but in the world of this theater, of this house, this couture house, they're perfectly yeah. acceptable. We're in 1950s London. Why is it? Why did you set it here, and why did you set it in that time? They're tied together because that's the heyday, you know, after the war. Sort of the, what happened with Paris and London in fashion is the golden era of couture. All those just, we still look at all these dresses today. There are museum tours about them. I mean, so like the golden age of Hollywood. That's the golden age of dressmaking. So it could have been Paris or it could have been London because those are the two epicenters. And I've always wanted to work here. I love it here. I mean, just the walk today. I couldn't explain my love for it here, but I've always wanted to work here. It gives you access to great actors as well. And you, you wrote this with Daniel Day-Lewis. Yeah. How, how does that process work? Do you write a bunch of scenes and then say, what do you think? Or does he write some scenes? How, how does that? No, that the first. I write scenes, hand them over. I think at first it was a collection of a, of a, a lot of scenes that didn't really have a story. It was a sh- pretty shapeless. And when it started to have some shape, after about like 25 or 30 pages, I showed that to Daniel, got his input, which initially was sort of more silent input. I think he, as any good collaborator, he was just sort of waiting to see a little bit more of where I'd go. And probably about halfway through the story, he really started to chime in and come up with suggestions. And uh, it was a proper collaboration of going back and forth. And then we kind of worked through the end of the story together. Does he anglicize it at all? Does he say, no, I'm I'm English, I'm not going to say that? Yeah, I I would say, um, I think Alma says, I'm mad. I thought, oh, because that's a good line, because she's mad. And he says, I think you mean angry. You know, I thought, right, okay. <laughs> okay. That's one That's one way. Ill, I think I'm going to be ill. I think I'm going to be sick. I think I, I would write, I think I'm going to throw up. <laughs> I, I, I don't think Reynolds would say I'm going to throw up. No. <laughs> no. Um, so uh, the other woman in the movie is, of course, played by Vicky Creeps, who plays Alma, who you've just uh, just mentioned. What is it that attracts Reynolds to Alma? What is it that attracts Reynolds to Alma? Um, what are you doing? I'm just getting <laughs> I'm getting a finger signal as to how many minutes are left. The answer is eight. Okay. <laughs> um, so I could fill a minute of silence thinking about this question. Look, Daniel Day-Lewis <laughs> can be a silent contributor. You cannot. Okay. Because um, that doesn't make great radio. <laughs> exactly. Pauses on the radio. Like, you could drive a truck through. Mm-hmm. It's not... It's Dan- Daniel will get away with it, but I'm afraid you won't. Exactly. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I mean, he sees, he sees, he sees, um, she's cute to look at. She's beautiful. Um, and that's the, the initial thing. And she stumbles and she blushes. And there's this kind of instant attraction. But very quickly, it becomes something else. It becomes um, a challenge and, and an opponent. I think he's in a position where he's probably turned on by love as as a as a sport you know i think he's probably looking for somebody to um go against him Mm. and treat the relationship as if it was a tennis match or a chess match or a wrestling match whatever it was and we're back to breakfast um because he's ordering uh, a breakfast and the way daniel day lewis orders breakfast is a seduction scene maybe it's just the way he says and sausages but everyone, I think it was a great line, and only he could have given it the, the power that he does. 
It's funny, isn't it? I remember being on the set and thinking, I can't believe how much mileage we're getting out of ordering breakfast. <laughs> right. This is this is really <laughs> astonishing. Yeah. And I, just on the subject of food, which is which you've hinted at talking about breakfast, but food is a theme throughout the film and when he's hungry, he's happy. Yeah. And when he loses his appetite, he's an angry man. Yes. I don't want to go any further, but maybe you can just add some color into that. Add some color to that. Well, yeah, um, he clearly has a large appetite in general for everything. I think what makes him a good character is that he's the kind of character that could eat a breakfast that large pr probably every single day and still be um, rail thin, which says a lot to mm -hmm. you, you know, which says a lot, like how much he must be burning per square inch as is pretty clear, the intensity that he, that he has over his life and yeah. his work had experience in this before of course very successfully how do you direct daniel do you just wind him up and let him go how, how, how does that relationship work it's a little bit like that it's you know a lot of the work i feel is you do beforehand you do in in the preparation and the talking about it and the formation of the script so much of that work happens in the year leading up to starting and once you start it becomes very minimal i'm usually what the decisions that we make each day were really quite simple, which is like what color bow tie to wear. You know, that was those were the big decisions that we would make. He takes a, a ball and runs with it very strongly. The most you have to direct sometimes, you have to sort of you just say, oh, it's getting a little slow or you're rushing it or something very simple like that. That's kind of the extent of direction. It's all beforehand. It's all that constant kind of investigation of the possibilities of the way a scene might go, the possibilities mm. of a voice or a character or how he dresses, how he eats breakfast, what he orders for breakfast, all that stuff you've, you've dealt with beforehand. And the good news is, is that you don't, once you, once you start shooting, you, can, you get on with the practical business of doing it. It's funny, it, it can be labored before, it's a year of very detailed work, but it's funny just how simple it is once you start shooting. It's really mm. kind of, um, we don't, I don't think either one of us likes to belabor a scene or do it too many times. And so we try to move swiftly once we start. And when did you know that he was going to retire and that this was apparently his final picture? After we finished, he, he made his announcement. How did you feel? Sad, strange, yeah, uh, for sure. Um, do you believe him? I do. But then again, aren't announcements of retirement made so that they can be broken, maybe? Ask Elton John. <laughs> oh, did, did Elton retire? Again. He's got a farewell tour for three years. So. Is that right? Yeah. Well, he's got a lot of, lot of ground to cover. Can I mention, uh, just before we finish, that um, Johnny Greenwood getting a, an Oscar nomination for his score at last. Um, yeah. Because there are many people who would say he should have been here before, but, you know, there's a technicality and... He wasn't included for uh, for blood, and just can you just you, you must be thrilled for him, and you've worked with him many times. What is it that he brings to your? Well, movies? I just want to say that it, it, almost better than Johnny getting nominated for an Oscar is the thought of Johnny in a tuxedo. <laughs> that and even yet even better than that is the thought of the possibility of him having to give an acceptance speech is, is, has made me so happy. Um, I mean, I would pay top dollar to have, see him get up there and have no <laughs> idea how that would go. <laughs> Many people thought he should have been nominated. Yeah, for, he should have, for sure. But then there was that technicality, and, yeah. and so he wasn't included 
um, because some of the music had been heard before or something like that. But anyway, the fact that he's in there yeah. now must be enormously rewarding and satisfying to you. Uh, hugely. There's always been a kind of knock on the Academy branch saying that they're, they're a bit, there's a bit of a snobbery going on and there's, that you, they kind of look at a rock musician and think, oh, he's not, he's faking it. And um, Johnny is so far from faking it. He's, he's obvious, as you know, and a lot of people around here know, he's a proper musical course, yeah. genius, prodigy, rather. So it's amazing that he's recognized, and he should be, because it's a great, great score. And he worked his ass off. I mean, I mean there's so much music in the movie. So, yeah, and, 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 it was, and there was a bummer on There Will Be Blood. It was really a bummer. The Academy had, had to deal with, a couple of years before, a score that had been utilized... Um, in other ways, and they, they gave it an award, so there was this kind of insane restrictions about where music had been played before. I mean, we used a portion of a, of a, of a piece that Johnny wrote for the, uh, as a BBC commission that like five people heard, you know, and we just took that. And Anyway, it's great that they recognized him this yeah. time. She wants to help him in the way that he just is not, I mean, like, you know, Reynolds is someone else who's not ready to modify, oh my God, who's not ready to modify um, themselves to fit into another, I mean, another partner. Um, because it's, because, like, I'm trying to, like, when, uh, when he asks her to marry him, it's like, it's that sequence. Like, I always, like, tense up when I see that, like, this is not going to end well for the both of them. Like, this is just more of like, of like the, like they're trying to like fit a square peg in, into a round hole, um, sort of thing with like their personalities and the, the way that they're trying to find ways to fit, um, the routines in with each other. Um, cause it's like, yeah, then you get into that honeymoon sequence and it's like all their other quirks, um, start to, um, manifests like when Alma's like has the spoon hitting her teeth and stuff like that like that's super interesting because yes like she has like done the work to make herself a known presence but then it's like the the movie then like shifts into reminding of like um Reynolds is uber competitive <laughs> and uh and and she just has these little things that that will press his buttons but unbeknownst to him um, she's become as important to the business as Cyril is. Um, a name that we haven't mentioned that much is, is, is Leslie Manville. Exquisite turn. Um, of course, we've covered her before uh, when we discussed another year. Um, one of the great, like, British actors. And a completely different performance um, than another that, year. It's like the opposite right, right it's right, so impressive yes. yeah mm -hmm. um this was before she went to paris um uh, yeah i've left her in several mike lee movies and this is the first time that i saw her but uh she eventually exquisitely written role as well i mean the character is so well drawn um i mean yeah. that's also due to her performance but yeah. i don't know i think that it's one of those when you if you'd read that script, you're probably like, oh, that performance is bound to be, like, a notable one. Like, or that, that's going to be a character that people pay attention to. Mm -hmm. It reminds me a bit of the Amy Adams mm. and the Master. 
Um, like this is the one that's pulling the strings. Um, you think that's less like, hand jobs though. Well, you know the 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 head. Oh, you don't know true. what she's doing on screen. <laughs> Uh, I mean, like, talk about, I think almost more than Reynolds or Alma, I think Cyril is the character who changes the most on rewatch once you know how she, like, really fits into this. Because, of course, your assumption when you're first watching is that she's going to be territorial and she's not going to welcome any intrusion into this little bubble that she's created with her brother. And she must be jealous. And, you know, you again, you're allowed to see most of the movie thinking that's still the case like when the first time you watch the scene at breakfast where she says should I get rid of Alma you know she uses almost exactly the same language as she did for Reynolds first girlfriend like she's sitting around waiting for you let's get this over with and you know that's I the difference like her. right and the first time you hear that well, but the first time you hear that you think she's just right. kind of being nice and that she's just trying to you know right. butter Reynolds up um, and, and that she's both with the first girlfriend and the subsequent and with Alma, you think, oh, she must be so happy to just take out the trash and get rid of this and go back to real life. And you realize like, no, she actually does like these women or at least, you know, not mind them. She does genuinely think it's cruel of Reynolds to treat them this way. But she does what needs to be done and what Reynolds cannot bring himself to do in order to serve this higher purpose. And once you understand that and that she eventually is able to recognize that Alma can help and therefore is not an enemy and is in fact an ally, then you understand. And of course, she's also kind of the precedent for Alma. Like she's the first time you realize like, oh, there is a woman in Reynolds life who is able to challenge him and keep him in check and without so much as raising her voice with that amazing breakfast scene where she says you know don't challenge me you're not going to come out alive um and 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 she does that thing with the glasses like takes the glasses off and puts the hair back yes over the ears as if like i need a few seconds before i engage with you those are those moments throughout the entire film those little acting choices those little Um, movements that do the most. That's why if you read, yeah. again, if you read the plot snop, s- oh, yeah. summary of this movie, yeah. you'd think nothing really happens. But that, like, those moments are like fucking Iron Man punching Thanos. Like, that is like, those are like very key fil- moments of the film of their little <laughs> twitches or their little postures or whatever. Like, that tells so much more character than any possible word on a screen, uh, on, on a, in a piece of dialogue could be. Yeah. Like, they're... I think I think similarly, um, in the opening sequence, Reynolds like um, um, helps Henrietta up the stairs, and like there's or like he meets her up the stairs and like greets her and then like shows her around uh, the fitting area, and it's and and like Daniel Lewis like sits in the chair like very casually, but it's like in a way where he's like comfortable with the client and like schmoozing them a little bit it's it's, it's very wrist heavy performance choice, but, he's know, using his wrist in a lot of ways just like you know yes. it's all like kind of dainty and just yes. you know different different postures of his like right and left wrist the way that he right. picks up a buttered yeah, 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 yeah. asparagus is with such content um yeah yeah it's 
I, I mean, you know, it, it makes sense why um, why Daniel Day-Lewis and Leslie Manville were up for um, this w- nominations. But they the movie only won but, um, one in one of the great. It's crazy this yes. didn't sweep. <laughs> yes, um, costumes wins. No, I don't think it's no. It only crazy. it only this... won in costumes. I mean. It's not crazy yeah, because costumes, this is yeah. like the classic kind of movie where Oscar voters are able to recognize that it's important because of who is involved. Yeah. But it's not as emotional. And PTA has never been an Oscar wins guy. Sorry. Yes. No, uh, no totally correct. I mean, it's just, it's, yeah, it's yeah. too challenging and subtle of a movie to, you know, sweep the way the artist did. You know, it's yeah. just not... It's not going to, which is a compliment. No, to I know. Or your I, I shape guess I of said, waters. I, I guess of, it's not crazy. Not to me, to, though, it's just like yeah. if it's, it's obviously an immaculately looking movie. It's obviously well written. Um, like you might not like fall in love with it. And I guess that does require like you have to a lot of, I, I guess for it to really do well at the Oscars, the Academy members have to fall in love with it. They have, it has to be part of their like, oh, well, that was such a lovely film. Um, I... I guess it's just if it's Daniel Day Lewis's last movie, it's exceptionally crafted. Yes. The performances are fantastic. We've also covered now so it's both films of the decade. I I also just think it's crazy he didn't win. I mean, it's not crazy because I understand Oldman, Winston Churchill, blah blah blah. Yeah. But it's his last performance, and he's yeah. obviously just amazing in it. So it's just. <laughs> I was thinking about this earlier. Isn't it kind of crazy? Like we, he wasn't celebrated enough. Like it's Daniel D. Lewis, I know, and he is celebrated, but it's like it's his last movie. I feel like we just kind of. It was like, kind of unceremonious. Okay. It was in a way. I don't know. It just. It just. Well, perhaps. Yeah. Perhaps yeah, yeah, something yeah. we should discuss about the timing of this movie is that it came out like a month after the Harvey Weinstein revelation. Oh, I forgot about that. <laughs> it so did. I yes. think people, yes. which. Yeah. Again, I think the movie has quite a bit to say about gender relations and it's absolutely not valorizing Reynolds, but I think it lent itself to a lot of bad faith. Like, do we really need another movie about a difficult male genius right now? Which, again, I think yes. that has come out in yeah. the wash in the half decade since. And I think this is a movie remembered almost universally fondly and that has sort of faded and that's kind of the benefit of of coming mm-hmm. back and around to these things well because pta writes movies about leads who are idiots <laughs> i mean i mean like lancaster dodd's not like you know not all there and freddie from the master like they're they're like you know in their own heads and like um, Tom Cruise in Magnolia, like he's he's kind of a dunce and like he's an emotion, like, he's, he's emotionally so, like, stupid person. And stuff. He's not an um, idiot. He's emotionally makes... stupid. He doesn't understand. People. Oh, of course, of course. Yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, it's idiot's a strong word, and you know, but it's um, like they're they're they just they his lead characters trip over themselves um, so much, and it's so funny to me because it's like even Daniel Plainview, that one of the great. Like you know, celebrated characters of the the twenty first century. It's like he's kind of like 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 too wrapped up in this in this image of of capitalism. Um, but yeah, anyway. But the stuff about you know Weinstein being this hovering over that award season. Of course, those readings were put into stuff like 
your three billboards is and your um, shape of waters, even um, your Itanias, I suppose. Uh, I, I don't know. It's just that was certainly uh, hovering around that award season. Um, and I was going to say something else. but I, I Well, forgot. it's interesting to think about the ways in which this movie is both like and not like other Paul Thomas Anderson's because it's it's clearly like so singular in his filmography it is his only movie to be set outside of the state of California let alone America um it is his Mm -hmm. only movie that is basically like a chamber piece like there's only you know if you count the townhouse and the country house there's basically like two locations with only a handful the cast is ridiculously small compared um, to other of his movies. Yeah. All right, guys. Yeah, yeah. I would say oh, also the closest parting, is uh, Punch Drunk Love. Is, yeah. Sure. And it, yeah. yeah, it feels like in some ways kind of a reaction against Inherent Vice where like the whole point is that it completely spirals out of control and there's like no way you can follow it and it's a two and a half hour long d- kind of deliberately incoherent mess stuffed to the gills with everything and this is a much more focused, much more streamlined movie. But, like, if you squint, you can see the same director in it that you see in, you know, Punch Drunk Love would probably be the most obvious precedent because of the romance element, but there's bits of, you know, There Will Be Blood with a Daniel Plainview-type character in the center played by Daniel Day-Lewis. There's bits of the master. Licorice Pizza is really the closest. Interesting. For me. Um, like I mentioned before, as he's he is entering in, and you know, I guess you could even like say he's entering this new era of how to define codependency. Um, but uh, yeah, the way that um, Alana and Gary will reshape each other reminds me a lot of Almond Reynolds. Um, because they're just, I mean, you know, of course, that's a little different because they're trying to figure out the kind of people they are in, in the Grish Pizza and they're at sort of like um, um, a, a weird stage in, in life and they're trying to like, they're on two opposite tracks in life. But here it's more like they kind of, I think that Reynolds and Alma know the kind of person they are and they're trying to fit into each other. But the way that he's trying to examine both relationships, I think, is the most similar in his mind. Yeah, Licorice Pizza to me is like if Reynolds and Alma never found an equilibrium because, as you said, like there's not the same self knowledge there on either party. There's not the same like active initiative in the way that Alma steps in and is like, I will take control. I will set the tone of this. And when you're watching Licorice Pizza, like that's another movie where on rewatch you finally start to understand like oh this relationship is just a seesaw it's just going to be him pursuing her or her pursuing him oh it's him incredibly toxic her. and like yeah that's and well well that's that's another way of, of and then the related, like the final just, like, kiss in liquor's pizza though yeah. like to me even though it ends on that note like i left that movie thinking like that's just going to go on forever oh like, it's going to end horribly oh yeah i thought the same thing too it, it's either going to end horribly or just keep going or something. And then with Phantom Thread, you're like, no, no, no. Someone has stepped in to break the cycle and it is stable. And like, I leave that movie thinking like almost cracked it. Like they're going to be in that relationship forever. And I totally agree that those relationships feel like in conversation, but like one to me, 
is much more um, idealized than the other, even though they both obviously have toxic elements. Yeah, to me, it's that ending of Licorice Pizza is like, oh, mm-hmm. that's not like, gonna end well. Oh, no. Like, you you could see how, like, with, Licor- with Phantom Thread, like, the only thing that might be um, not sustainable with that relationship is how many times he gets him sick. Like, he could probably die. Um, but, like, no matter how, his stomach must be fucking awful by this point. Um, but with the, but with, um, I already forgot their names in Licorice Pizza. Yeah. With them, it's... Gary and Alana. I, there is nothing sustainable about that relationship. Not a single goddamn thing. I mean, he has these ideas on how to frame relationships that I, I've just, that just, like, amazed me. And I've never... I've never, I've never considered, and and will, uh, will always consider now that I've been brought to these ideas, such as um, Gary and Alana, the amount of times that they are running to each other or from somewhere, um, you know, I, I, I different like Allison mentioned, this is a chamber piece, and um, Reynolds and Alma don't spend that much time apart. But it's in that way where they're going to be conjoined together from like the way the things that the weird things that they do that they do share in common. Because there is this like it's a little bit of like um, how you can interpret uh, Punch Drunk Love as uh, a, mag- a musical because of the, the constant like John Bryan score. It's like here there is this like magic outside of the frame where they're it's bringing these two people together um in an act of uh selflessness and um thankless i mean thanklessness i mean what alma is doing it serves it serves for her to like care for reynolds and for reynolds to feel like he is being cared for but it's it is this idea of like oh well you you two just need to like talk about these these things but it's like it's an unspoken thing it's like everyone has their the weird thing and it's it's in that idea where it does feel so modern uh and and spoke to something um at the time i think um i don't know what that is but it's it's like that feels true to a lot of you know partnerships that everyone just has their has their thing that that's identified to to only that partnership. Yeah, a movie that this got compared to a lot at the time was Secretary, um, the Maggie Gyllenhaal movie. Sure. And um, I remember reading a piece about that movie talking about how, like, that BDSM relationship does not look like the way BDSM relationships generally do and should in real life, where there's, like, an explicit discussion of, like, here's what I want, here's what I don't want, here's what I will say if if you've gone too far and we're, like, explicitly going to lay out the boundaries before this started. And the piece was arguing, like, no, that's not what the movie depicts, but it's it's depicting the fantasy. It's depicting what everyone wants and very few people get because it's such a difficult thing, which is that someone intuits your wants and needs and delivers them for you. And, I mean, like, Phantom Thread is not literally kinky, but is, I think, rightly described as a kinky movie because it's about, you know there's this unorthodox thing that I want 
that I've never been able to say that I want, but I can appreciate now that you're giving it to me. And it's, mm-hmm. again, like, it's very adult, and I love the PTA makes movies that, like, he's one of very few people who I think ha- has the guts to try to do something like this, and not just, like, pull it off, but be able to be like, I have the confidence in myself that I will just... You know, Twitter will not understand what's going on here, and there will be age gap discourse. But I will make a movie about a teenager dating a college student, or I will make a movie about he commits. you know a European immigrant poisoning right. a fashion designer, and just mm-hmm. trust that people will get it. And it it finds he doesn't waffle, do get it. which is good. I think is good. Yeah, it, yeah, yeah. Because he he reminds. I mean, I, there's there's literally no other filmmaker not even like his contemporaries are among uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's league in the way that he thinks about his career because of course like there are themes and characters that are reshaping throughout his movies but it's not like oh how can I rework the idea of like fathers and sons and codependency um, it's it's these things of like you know in interviews when this was coming out and I'm sure like Wickers Priestley said the same thing where it's like oh, yeah, you know, I just have these things written um, that I want to work on, but I'll just, you know, I'll get to that when I get to that. Um, yeah, he just, he, he thinks, I, I think he thinks of his career as something that just goes as, as like, a steady pace where he just is selective um, about what he works on and the time that he works on it, but it's, like, I don't, it's not this, like, monument, He he doesn't, work for like like he doesn't he's always made movies I think like around the same budgets and stuff like that like they do feel singularly him like he's never uh, had a co-writer and stuff like that yeah so this is it makes sense a totally apocryphal story that I don't think there is a real source for because I don't think it actually happened but I think it is telling that it became a legend which is that someone you know like an executive was talking to another and complaining about making a Paul Thomas Anderson movie and like why am I doing this it's you know it costs money and I don't know if I can make it back because it's an art house movie and the other studio executive he's talking to says like because it's your turn <laughs> and you know if you go through like he's yeah. worked with all these because he's never sticked he's done never stuck with yeah studio. he's never yeah. had like a Burned. Chris Nolan Warner Brothers or now Universal relationship mm-hmm. and I think it speaks to the fact you know the even if it didn't happen which I again I don't think it did it speaks to the sense of like this is just something that everyone understands is good for everybody. And he got the capital to get his movies made early on. And now we just get to reap the rewards if he decides to go off to England for no discernible reason at the time. Mm-hmm. I-, I remember um, hearing Mike Mills talk about Come On, Come On when that was coming out. And he's like, if I just make the money back to make one more movie... And then I just do that again. Like, I'll be fine. <laughs> you know, and I think I think he, he brings true with the same. Where it's just like, my money, my my money, my movies make the same um, as they do from the last one. And, like, they cost around the same, I think. Um, and then that seems to be, like, a steady enough pace. <laughs> um, and, that's, and that's really cool. Um, and, like, he works with the same team, I think. Of course, with the abs, like we've mentioned, with the absence of Robert Ellswit, and now he serves as cinematographer um daniel looking back on the roles you've taken on and reynolds woodcock in particular can you put your finger on what it is 
what it was about a character that you were looking for to intrigue you, to excite you, to, to make you want to commit yourself to it fully? Well, this was definitely an exception, so I'm not sure I can include it in as far as it didn't exist when we started. So we worked towards something or other and then kind of kept on re-examining it. And, um, uh, but in the past, uh, in the past, I think it's almost invariably been... Um, uh, well, it's hard to know why one is intrigued by another life as opposed to a different life. But um, uh, but it's always been with a sense that it's something completely unknown to me, and it's the mystery of a life unknown that has somehow drawn me into its orbit. And then once it's got me there, I've no choice but to keep trying to move towards it in the hope that at some point you gain for yourself the illusion, at least, that you see the world through their eyes, just as sometimes when you're walking in the street and you see somebody that's fascinating to you in some way and you just imagine, or try to imagine what their experience of the world is. And it's really just, it begins with that. But with Paul, uh, in this case, and we sort of felt that we, I think that we'd done one thing and maybe we should try something else and build from the, something from the ground up and uh, and so it it, um, it revealed itself over a very long period of time and it was only after probably we'd been working for over a year or so that I suddenly thought oh my goodness I think I know who this might be so it was very different thank you Leslie um, one of my favorite things in the movie is um, when uh, Alma has shooed everybody out of the house to surprise Reynolds, and he's bewildered, and he keeps saying, repeating over and over again, where is Cyril? It's like he's, it's like he isn't sure where he is or what's happening without his sister. And I gather you two met quite a while before, before filming started to get to know each other. Uh, did you two create some elaborate backstory for the, the Woodcock children that you were? Well, I mean, <clears throat> we did, we did. Um, we did create some backstory, as as you as you have to. But I think what happened really was that we 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 um, we didn't know each other particularly before we started work on the film. But we met seven months or so before, and we just um, it was really easy. We just became friends. We became close quite organically, really. Um, so. Uh, that was good. Uh, that was a useful thing because then we can, you can, you can, a bit like what Daniel's saying about you, you, you can see somebody in the street who you become fascinated with that you want to, uh, you wonder what their life is like and you want to, you want to inhabit it. We, we could take that friendship that we had and transpose it into being useful, very useful for Cyril and Reynolds who had to. Uh, be able to sit and not talk and be fine with that, be quiet and comfortable. Um, and you can't create that, um, you can't just l slap that onto a situation. It has to be there. Fa the foundations of that have to be there. So um, 
but it, we thankfully we we quite liked each other. Really, I was going to so. say, what if you'd hated each other's guts? <laughs> yeah, well, that wasn't the case. So <laughs> we'd make it work some. We, other then we'd way. have had to have acted, but wouldn't we? <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the lovely things about sibling relationships is that it's a sort of paradoxical thing of shared experiences but having experienced the same things in a very different way. Mm, yeah. Um, yeah. So that we had our shared history, but our response, our responses to that history exactly. were very different ones. Exactly, yeah, yeah. That was good. Like, Mom always liked you best. Oh, n n well, n let's not go there. <laughs> I don't want to fight him, not tonight. <laughs> Johnny, typically, a lot of composers have to do everything at very short notice, and they don't start writing the music until they see a film. But I believe you were involved in this from very early on, and I wondered what kind of um, what kind of verbal cues or or clues or references Paul talked to you about, or, or what kind of conversations you had to start writing the music before before filming started. Well, he wanted romantic music, and also it to be quite English and which is feels like a bit of a contradiction now I've said that <laughs> but um just to be very sincerely you know felt and he sent me lots of um, Nelson Riddle and I just tried to steer him towards kind of Glenn Gould and uh -huh. lots of Bach recordings and um and in terms of English music I don't know we never really explored that very fully there's a darkness there too. I love how the just with the piano and strings, one sec, one one minute it's it's romantic in the classic sense, and then, and then it can be quite sinister or, or heralding something creepy about to happen in the, in the next moment. Yeah, so I mean, my instinct is always to look for, you know, atonalities and clashes and darkness in music. And I'm in Radiohead. I mean, it's kind of my my day job. So um, this was about kind of resisting that urge as much as I could and. And to be, like I say, sincere and genuine in the romance of it, or you know, not feel ashamed as I feel ashamed talking about it right now. <laughs> Just, you know, let it out. You know, Joanne, you've worked with Paul in all of his films, but this is the first one outside the U.S. Of course, you're British, but I wondered what was um, what was exciting or challenging or most satisfying for you from your point of view. Um, well, it was exciting to come back and do a film in England. Um, and Paul had wanted to work here for a long time, so that was exciting to me that that actually came to happen. Um, I think Paul's style of working was difficult for the British to understand at the beginning until they got into the groove. Um, the whole sort of system between the way the English work and the Americans work. Um, I think it was difficult finding a house to, you know, the Fitzroy house that we had. We looked at lots of different houses and it was hard to find something that was, hadn't been modernised that you could bring down or something that wasn't a complete wreck that you had to like, really do up from scratch. And we had another house in uh, Mansfield Mews or Mansfield Road that we were going to do and that kind of fell apart right at the last moment which was at the time a big deal but we found the place where we shot in Fitzroy Square which was really way better than the other house in terms of for shots and stuff for Paul and had this wonderful staircase. And so I think that was the biggest cha production challenge was finding that house and taking it over for such a long time and working with that committee who run the whole Fitzroy Square and begging them for extra days for us to stay there. 
<laughs> Poor fam Marchant. <laughs> I think uh, a good place to wrap it up before favorite scene is just to mention uh, Johnny Greenwood. Um, I mean, this is... He is one of the, if not maybe the most important part of this movie um, to me. I, I think his score is carries so much weight. It is such a, an emotional... It sets the tone for almost every scene. I mean, when the relationship is rocky, you can almost immediately tell just from the way, just from his score, the eeriness of it, almost like a, almost sometimes like a horror film. Um, this just unsettled nature of it. And when it's great, it sounds like, like butterflies in your stomach. It sounds like your heart singing to you. It's truly just a perfect piece of uh, film composing. Yeah, I lived with the score for months. I would just like drive around or walk around and just listen to it. And I love that it helps the movie kind of sink its claws into you, that the score is so um, easy and pleasant to listen to and frankly like works outside the context of the movie, even though you're right. Like it, it maps so neatly onto the emotional cues, but it's also just like a pleasurable and remarkable piece of musicianship in itself that you can just take off into your own life and helps the movie kind of have this 360 degree immersive experience. You're so right. Yeah. It's, it's baked into the movie as a, as a fourth character. Um, and never ever feels like it's placed on top of a movie. It just, it acts as, um, as a guide through how you're supposed to, take in these emotions with the performances and with this hypnotic uh dialogue um it's it's brilliant uh but you know uh this year we favored alexandre desplat and his work on oh i was gonna say, i was gonna say i wonder if, um, if you know, i thought of zimmer obvious, i thought zimmer won for dunkirk but no that makes more sense desplat and, and and i mean of course like johnny greenwood scores i probably my most listen my most frequented film scores um with uh of course like the collaborations with Paul Thomas has he Anderson ever won an Oscar very very special and I think like probably that's crazy no, Johnny Greenwood no um the Phantom the Phantom Thread score was his first nomination ever because of the technicality um. for There Will Be Blood also um it was like the arrival thing yeah that we mentioned um, and yeah, I mean, you know, just to wrap up that half, um, it, it was, a, this movie was up for a picture, director, actor, supporting actress, it won costumes. Mark Bridges. Mark Bridges. Yeah. He won, he won the, uh, uh, the Watt jet ski. You guys remember that? Like Jimmy Kimmel had that thing of like, whoever gives the shortest, shortest ex- acceptance speech wins a jet ski and has a jet ski. I don't know because you have a broken brain. Uh, was Manville was he, she uh, in the second <clears throat> or no? It was Janie and Metcalf. Those were the two, right? Yes. That was. Yeah, stacked here. Uh, Very stacked here. Les- Leslie Manville, Laurie Metcalf. Which, no That's offense, Styles. I mean, it. It's just it's Leslie Manville about- just acts circles around Janie. It's just like, a, it's a loud performance. 
I think she I think she can't she can't. Oh, it's be also involved. more showy. It's just yeah, a much more showy performance. And I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying that's just it's just not sure. on yeah. the level. Um, yeah, I know. It's Wait, a disgrace that old men won over um, uh, uh, Day Lewis for a yell- a performance that's half half of it is yelling. Sure. Um, it's not. I, I don't. I don't think it's like the worst performance I've ever mm-hmm. seen. Like some people have said, but it's just. But it's just compared to daily. Also, it's like, what are we doing here? Yeah, I am currently watching Slow Horses on Apple, and like every episode of that show mm. is a better. I was than going to watch. I'm thinking about and, watching that show. Uh, it, yeah, I think that's a. That sounds like it's up your alley. So yeah, good, it's... and every season is six episodes, and you will like polish it all off in a day or two. Uh, do you, Clay? Do you, do you remember the other two nominees and supporting actors? Um, Sally was lead, so Octavia Spencer, I'm guessing. Which, okay, fine. Yes. Um, and this one is not a Best Picture nominee. I don't know. Mary J. Blige and Unbound. We've now covered. Um, th- oh, yeah. I was gonna say like three out of the five um, Best Actor nominees this year. Uh, Dan Kulia. Timmy Chalamet, get, call him by your name, Daniel Lewis. Um, Gary Oldman, of course, won, and Denzel. Yeah, who sneaked in at the last second, who beat out Franco. Um, performance. Yeah. And then there was that yeah. ridiculous conspiracy that it was yeah, because right. Franco got those allegations, even though those nominations were put in probably way before that. Yeah. Yeah, it, yeah we'll have to look at the timeline. Uh, favorite scene? phantom thread oh that's so hard yeah i was just gonna take the low-hanging fruit and say it's the dinner scene which includes like 17 quotable one-liners from i'm admiring my own gallantry to are you a secret agent sent here to ruin my evening and possibly are you here to kill me um to the is this a game yes uh, to, you know, Alma's aforementioned breakdown and it is the movie or it's the point of the movie where Alma starts to assert herself and says like, I know, I know he does not like surprises, but I need to love him in my own way. And this mm. is what we're doing. And it's when you think she's kind of sealing her fate and, you know, yeah. flaming out of this relationship. And then you realize it's, it's only the beginning of like what the relationship will truly become. And Daniel D. Lewis in pajamas is a beautiful sight to see. <laughs> yes. <laughs> truly, truly. Um, because it, it is on rewatch when you're like, no, <laughs> he doesn't like surprises. Like, like, but, but then it like in the way where you're like, you are going to play his game. Um, but it, it, it's only gonna be like uh, in, in another version of like shutting the door on her when when he's working it's like you're gonna feel distressed over this like Yes, but what is this? 
It's a surprise. Are you hungry? Where is Cyril? <clears throat> I've sent everyone home. Where is Cyril? She's left. What time did she leave? This afternoon. I've made us dinner. Let me collect myself for a moment. I'll just have a bath, I think. This is very kind of you, Alma. Would you like a champagne or a martini? No, thank you. Oh, is that your dress? It's finished. Let's have a look at it. Rather interesting. Very good work. I'll just have my bath now. When will Cyril get back? Mm, tonight? How was your appointment with the princess? She's very beautiful, like a sculpture of some kind. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so, will you make her a wedding gown? I have made her baptism her first communion and confirmation dresses. I made the dress for her presentation at court, indeed the entire wardrobe for her coming out season. It's only right that I should make her wedding dress, wouldn't you think? Christ, no. But this is not what I wanted to say. I'm, I'm sorry, I don't know what I said. I. This is meant to be a nice evening. Let me serve you. Do you like it? I do. No, you don't. You don't like it at all. Usually you always tell me what you think. What is this? You're lying. 
As I think you know, Alma, I prefer my asparagus with oil and salt. And knowing this, you have prepared the asparagus with butter. Now, I can imagine in certain circumstances being able to pretend that I like it made this way. Right now, I'm just admiring my own gallantry for eating it the way you've prepared it. I don't know what I'm doing here. I'm just waiting around like an idiot for you. This was an ambush, Alma. To what purpose? This is not... I know it's not going as I expected. I, I didn't mean these things to come out. I'm sorry, but it was meant to be nice. Well, what did you expect? I wanted time with you. I wanted to have you to myself. You have me all the time. No. What are you talking about? I don't. I, there, there are always people around. And if not, then there's something between us. Something between us? Yes. What? Some... What? Distance. When did this happen? What happened to make you behave like this? Is it because you think I don't need you? I don't. Well, that's very predictable of you. Don't act so tough. I know you are not. Yeah, that's right, that's right. If I don't protect myself, somebody will come in the middle of the night and take over my corner of the room and ask me about their f***ing asparagus. Don't be a bully. You'll there be are other bully. things I'd like to do with my time. It's my time. I have no idea my what time. I'm doing here in your time. What am I doing here? I'm standing around like an idiot, waiting for you. Waiting for what? Waiting for you. Waiting for what? Waiting for you to get rid of me. To tell me to leave. So tell me. So I don't stand around like a fool. Asparagus. Is this all about your asparagus? No, it's not about what asparagus. What the hell is it about? Are you a special agent sent here to ruin my evening and possibly my entire Why life? Why are you so rude to me? Why are you talking to me like this? Is this like my this? house? This is my house, yes, isn't this it? Is, is your this house. my house? Of course, it's your house. Or did somebody drop me on foreign soil behind enemy lines? You I'm surrounded me here. on all sides. It's you who brought me here. When the hell did this happen? Who are you? Do you have a gun? You here to kill me? Hmm? Do you have a gun? Stop it! Where's your gun? Stop being a child. Where's your gun? Stop playing. Show me your gun. Stop playing this game. I'm not I'm playing not... a game? Yes, mm-hmm. What uh -huh. game am I playing? What game? What precisely is the nature of my game? You tell me. Oh, this whole... What? All your rules and your walls and your doors and your people and your money and all this clothes and everything this 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 game everything here the whole <laughs> nothing is normal or natural or everything is a game yes mister no madam yes uh, well if it's i my, don't eat if, this if, i don't drink if, that if i don't it's do my life that you're describing it's entirely up to you whether you choose to share it or not. If you don't wish to share that life, as apparently it's so disagreeable to you in every respect, why don't you just fuck off to back where you came from? Yeah. Um, I think mine is going to be when he sees his mother. Um, I think it's...
per- it's such a simple choice oh, to just have yeah. her there instead of like in a ghostly form or anything. She's just there. Um, and I think that's such a smart choice because the movie doesn't need like her being the ghost of Christmas past or whatever. She's just like this physical presence there that feels completely tangible and you can see and it's really eerie. It's really like it's kind of it's very unsettling. And the close-ups of him talking and her not, and it's just... And then there's this cam, the way the camera tracks Alma when she enters, as it, and it's, and it's completely tracked on her movement for like a good, uh, for a good second, where she, you know, the camera pans to the left while having the, um, his mother still in frame, and then to the right while having her mother still in frame. Um, and it's just this almost tense scene, but also this very, like, engrossing one. And it's not, again, like, not much happens, but just the presence of her there is just kind of, I don't know. I mean, it also just form like, just completely solidifies this guy. He's a big mama's boy, and that's really who he is at heart. He's just a mama's boy. The dress needs to be ready by 9 a.m. Make its journey to Beltran. We do expect to be here for quite some time. If you need to use the telephone, please use the one in my office. Hello, what can I do to help? Could you pin the ribbon on the hem there, please? Thank you. Ladies, I'm very sorry, but I'm afraid you'll have to work late this evening. Dress needs to be ready by 9 a.m., and I know there's rather a lot to do on it still. So please do expect to be here, possibly for most of the night. If you need to make telephone calls, do so for my office. Thank you. Are you here? Are you always here? I miss you. I think about you all the time. I hear your voice say my name when I dream. Then when I wake up, there are tears streaming down my face. 
I just miss you. It's as simple as that. I want to tell you everything. I don't understand what you're saying. I can't hear your voice. Fear is going to It also reminds me of uh, the uh, ideas of religion that are brought brought up in in PTA films. That not this this film doesn't concern itself with religion to the effect that the others do. But his mom is is his mom is projected in the way that we would kind of see a Christ figure. Uh, just like it, like in the way that she's framed a little bit, like it's sort of like uh, painterly in the way that she's dressed, um, and and you know it's like the whole scene is hazy from the uh, the the lighting. I also find um, it funny that he says people. like I don't think it's spooky uh, that they watch over us, and then a object like objectively spooky thing happens. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like that's all something that we saw. Um, yeah, it's that, that shit goes so hard. Uh, I, I would have to say from the moment when we see, uh, Alma talking to Dr. Hardy in that framing device all the way from like the end title card when it says Phantom Thread, all those moments are good. The final line, uh, the I final line yeah, is so perfect. Um, <laughs> Yeah. Oh, it's so unreal. Um, but no, really, I'll say what I'll I'll say like when like it always it, like it always get it always kills me like uh, when Reynolds is talking about uh, like when he finds out about Barbara Rose going to or Henrietta going to another uh, dressmaker and he's freaking out about it to uh, Cyril and he and almost standing right. Uh, right behind him, and and he's talking about chic, what? like 
fucking sheep. Fucking sheep. Some, whoever created uh, that term should be spanked sheep. publicly. Uh, yeah, it's... Uh, oh, it's fabulous. Um, it's that point in the movie where you're like, you are, like, just the worst. Awful like, person. You, you are a... You, you, you... Yeah, you just... You are unwavering and... Uh, Un- uncompromising you would like you're almost like seduced throughout the uh, entirety of the movie you're like okay maybe like alma just doesn't get you but then like of course like that's first time watching and you're like wait like even oh you're a nightmare watching, okay scene, like, i understand dude. now you're a complete nightmare yeah, figure yeah i know i know seriously oh uh, yeah and, and and daniel day lewis like is so funny and hasn't really shown this sense of humor um prominently in in so long his speaking intonations um, in this whole film i just love his voice Um, in this i think it's so i think it's so lovely and i think it's so it's also yeah and it just works the best with the comedy in the film and just his you know he had to kill me is that what you know am i being put am i you know am i being surrounded am i behind enemy lines it's just those i don't know it's a very it's very nice where has henrietta harding been She's been to another house. Which one? Why didn't you tell me? Because I didn't want to. Is there something I'm unaware of? Because as far as I can remember, all I have done is to dress her beautifully. I don't think that matters to some people. I think they want what is fashionable and chic. Chic? Oh, don't you start using that filthy little word, chic. Whoever invented that ought to be spanked in public. I don't, I don't even know what that word means. What is that word, fucking chic? They should be hung, drawn and caught at fucking chic. It shouldn't concern you. It does concern me. It concerns me very much, Cyril, because it's hurt my feelings. It's hurt my feelings. So what's all this moaning about? I am not moaning. I do not like to be turned away from. Nobody does. But I don't want to hear it because it hurts my ears. made a terrible mistake in my life, Cyril. I've made a... I made a terrible mistake. I need you to help me. What do you want me to do? I can't work. I can't concentrate. I have no confidence. She does not fit in this house. We built this house, the two of us. Now she's turning the whole bloody place upside down. She's turning me inside out. She's turning you and me against each other. 
Her arrival has cast a very long shadow, Cyril. Mrs. Vaughan is satisfied with the dress. No one gives a tinker's fucking curse about Mrs. Vaughan's satisfaction. Thank you, Alma. Not at all. What a model of politeness you two are. There is an air of quiet death in this house, and I do not like the way it smells. Oh, it's so delicious. I love this movie so much. Um, yeah, Allison, thank you so much for Thank you here. guys so much for having me. I love any yeah. excuse to rewatch this movie. Of course, of course. Um, we would love to have you back soon, but for now, plug where everybody can find you online and what you've been up to. I am a Herman 2006 on all social platforms and you can find my published work at Variety uh, where I my top 10 of the year is coming soon so be sure to. How, how cool that. do you feel when you say you can find my work at Variety? Yeah. Do you feel pretty cool when you say that? <laughs> I mean it's uh, you know it's like a nice privilege but um that's awesome. Yeah, it's very fun. I I mean, no, it couldn't have happened to a better person. Oh, thank you. That's very nice. Jack, where can everyone find you? I also have a... Oh, my God. I also have a... No one cares, Jack. Although it's not no one cares. It's at the Boston Hassle. Okay. No, no. I, I don't care either about uh, that top ten either. I'm going to complain to myself how weird it is. Um, I don't know. I haven't thought about it but uh we shall see for a later date i think this actually will be out by the time that's out which is weird to think about um but also i'm on twitter at jack a draper where i'll post that top 10 and letterbox jack draper 7 where i've logged everything that will be on that top 10 uh this movie right now in the u.s is available on netflix um and our next episode and our first episode of 2024 Ooh. is on Alex Ross Perry's Her Smell. I already got our Becky That's something good. merch picked out. That movie fucking rules. We um, got matching outfits. Yeah. Yeah. Because we got Becky something merch. Just, sure. just wait. You're going to love it. Whatever you're you say. Try it on everyone everything. follow me at Birds of Clay on Twitter and on Letterboxd. You will not find me. You will not find my top 10 because I haven't watched enough movies. Um, you could follow me on Instagram, uh, Birds of Clay 99. You could follow the podcast word account, ETT Pod. You could send us an email at exiting through 2010 to gmail.com. Please remember, rate, review, subscribe. Give us five stars on any podcast platform you listen to us on to. Greatly appreciate it. Share us with a friend retweet do all those great things run up to someone in the middle of the street and say can i get your measurements real quick just kidding listen to exiting through the 2010s and run away um yeah be good to yourselves stay safe support um the uh, the advocacy and peace movement going around uh to support the horrible uh, atrocities happening in palestine right now keep retweeting donating whatever Whatever you can do, greatly appreciated. Stay vigilant. Um, and as always, we will catch you next time on Exiting Through the 2010.